scripture reading for the day is Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, and with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Good morning. We are so blessed to be able to come together this Lord's Day. We have a beautiful day that we that God has provided us with, and we are thankful for the breath of life that we each have enjoyed up to this point. And we are so thankful that we are able to be together to worship our great and powerful and mighty God. And thankful for the songs that we have been led in this morning, especially that deal with what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we look at the book of Ephesians in the fourth chapter. And I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning there in Ephesians chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul really begins to talk about the subject of unity. Unity within the Lord's church, within the local church. And that is something that the songs that we have been singing this morning have expressed the importance of our unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In the song, How Sweet, How Heavenly, in verse 2, when each can feel each brother's sigh and with him bear a part when sorrow flows from eye to eye and joy from heart to heart. What beautiful words that would describe that whenever you are feeling something, that I am feeling it too. That we do not go through anything alone or separately. The relationships that we enjoy through Christ in the church, it brings joy and blessing in our life. We have peace and unity in a way that we could never experience alone. You think about that. How could you ever know what unity is if you didn't have a relationship with someone else? That's an impossibility. Unity demands that there be at least two people. That we have peace with one another. I'm at peace with myself most of the time. But it's whenever I have a relationship with someone else that then there can be tension that I have to work for peace. And with all of the things that we can see, love, joy, peace, harmony, and unity, all of them require multiple people to be in a relationship with one another. And that is one of the greatest blessings about being in the Lord's church is that we should be striving and aiming for unity. And when we all have that as our goal, then we are going to be able to accomplish that. And that when we want to cooperate with one another, when we want to work together for the cause of Christ, then we will set aside anything that would detract from that. But we need to cherish the unity that we have and enjoy it completely. And the Apostle Paul, as he begins writing here in Ephesians chapter 4, And in verse 1, when he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, 
implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is a heavy statement there that Paul makes in verse 3. That we need to be diligent, he says, in preserving unity. There is something about unity that we need to understand up front from the very beginning. And that is unity among God's people never happens by accident. Unity doesn't happen by accident. Notice what Paul says there in verse 3, that we must be diligent to preserve the unity. That this is something that we have to make effort in. We have to be diligent. We have to strive for unity. And that this is not going to just be something that is like a magic word, if you will, and say, well, we have unity. Just because we might say we have unity does not mean that we are unified. Unity is not in word only. Unity is established and preserved by positive action, which Paul, I think, here explains for us. That the necessary ingredients, if you will, for how we can accomplish unity and how we can preserve unity is that we all have to be committed to walking according to the Gospel. We have to live our life in a way that would be consistent with what the Gospel requires. We have to demonstrate the attitude and the mindset of Jesus Christ. If we are going to have unity among God's people, among the local church, we have to be committed to living that out in the way that the Gospel requires. And that's going to look a whole lot like what what Paul says in verse 2 of Ephesians 4, when he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That if we're going to be able to accomplish unity, we have to have this godly attitude, the godly perspective. We have to be humble. We cannot think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, as Paul would say in the book of Romans in the 12th chapter. We have to consider others first before we can consider our own desires. We have to be humble in our attitude, in our perspective, in our desires. And we, have, we can't have this attitude that says it's going to be my way or the highway. We have to be willing to acknowledge the thoughts and the minds of others. And we have to do that in a way that would be gentle and patient with others. We have to be tolerant towards others whenever they do not necessarily agree with us. We have to be willing to come to the table and to talk to them. And of course, we're not talking about compromising any area of truth or anything that would be required of the Gospel. We have to be firm on those things. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But we have to be willing on matters of judgment, on matters of opinion. We have to be willing to be tolerant towards one another. We have to love one another at all times, in all situations. That's what Paul is saying, that we have to be committed to having that kind of mindset, that kind of attitude, if we're going to be able to preserve the unity of the local church, we have to be committed to that. And we have to be diligent. This is not going to be something that does not take any effort. This is not just something we can just magically say that we have unity and voila, we have it. 
It's going to take effort on each and every single person that is a member of the Lord's body. And so we have to have this if we're going to be able to fundamentally talk about unity. But then we also have to recognize that there is a doctrinal foundation in which we cannot compromise. The, the seven ones that Paul goes through here in these verses following in verse 4, when he says there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Now we have the one body, the Lord's church, that Christ gave His life for, which He is the head of. And whenever we are going to have unity, it all begins with recognizing Jesus as our head. I think one of the ways that we begin to disrupt unity among the Lord's people is that whenever we begin to forget that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is our head, and we begin to have a very self-inflated attitude and idea of the importance of ourselves. That's when unity can become disrupted. When we think that we know all the answers and we forget that it's Jesus who is our head. We have the one Spirit who has revealed the will of God to us. We have the one hope of heaven. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he says in verse 5. That Jesus is our King and we believe in Him. We have faith and we are obedient to His will in the one baptism that would wash away our sins and add us to the one body of Christ Jesus. In verse 6, he says, And one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We recognize the sovereignty of God and His great majesty and His power and His authority. And these are some doctrinal, foundational truths that we cannot compromise on. That we must all come to believe and accept and acknowledge these things. If we're going to have unity, we all have to agree on these things. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in verse 10, Paul says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. These, I believe, are the essentials that we have to agree upon. That we have to speak these same things. We have to come to the same judgment on these matters about the one body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one baptism, and one sovereign God who is above all and is over all. We have to accept these as fundamental to our understanding of truth. And this is the doctrinal foundation of what we each should believe if we're going to have unity. And something I believe... I hear people talk about from time to time, and that's something that is, well, what does the church of Christ believe about this or about that? And I don't want to get too picky or anything like that, but I would suggest to you that there is no church of Christ doctrine. What you have is biblical doctrine, biblical teaching. And that as members of the Lord's church as the church of Christ, we want to practice what the Bible teaches. 
And so we want to be committed to what is found in the Bible. We want to practice sound doctrine. But what we can see throughout history and throughout the stream of time is that there have been departures from the faith even among God's people, among churches of Christ. There have been people who have left the faith. That have distorted doctrinal teaching. And I don't want to be following and committed to any teaching of man. I want to be committed to the teachings that is found in Scripture. And so whenever we are talking about doctrinal foundations for unity, it's that we're looking in the Scriptures and the Word of God for what is necessary for our unity. And so as we continue on in Ephesians chapter 4, as we would might see here in verse 11, as Paul begins writing, he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Why do we need to focus on unity? Why is unity so important? in our life within the local church. I believe Paul begins to talk about that. As there is teaching and instruction, there are apostles in the instruction from the apostles and prophets that we have recorded in Scripture. As we have evangelists and pastors and teachers that are instructing us from the Word of God. It is all about promoting work and service. Notice what he says in verse 12 that this is all about the equipping of the saints. It's for the equipping of the saints. For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the reason that we have biblical teaching and instruction, that's why we have Bible classes, that's why we have sermons, and why we spend time looking in the Word of God, it's that we want to all be stronger. We want to be equipped so that we can leave here to go work. So that we can leave here to go serve. It's not just a mental exercise. It's not just to see uh, how long Sean can bore us to death or until we go to sleep or something. Because he preaches so long. It's about promoting work and effort and striving and living outside of the walls of this church building. That we might be willing to serve others and work for the cause of Christ. And then notice what he says in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And as we work and as we're serving one another, that is what promotes unity. That is, that is what puts us on the trajectory to be unified in and having the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, he would describe. In verse 13, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That we're willing to grow spiritually to mature ourselves in our faith. And as you continue on in verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And as we are seeking to mature and grow in our faith and our knowledge, as we seek to come to a more unified 
place in the lives of each and every individual here. We want to do so so that we're not easily deceived. So that we can spot something that's error, that's wrong. We want to be able to help people grow. And that only is accomplished through speaking the truth in love. That we must speak the truth, we must teach the truth. Unity should promote the truth being spoken. And if we don't speak the truth, then we don't really love someone, do we? If we say we love someone, we have to tell them if they're right or if they're wrong. We have to be willing to address their sin or the mistakes that they might make. We have to be willing to teach them in a loving way. If we don't speak the truth in a loving and kind way, then the truth might actually be hindered. And that's something that we have to be very careful about. That we don't want to hinder the truth through my ungodly, unkind words. My unloving words. We must speak the truth in an uncompromised fashion, in a loving and a kind way. What we say and how we say it is critical. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand here as he continues on in verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That we all have something to contribute and we all must have the right attitude. We must all come to believe the same things regarding the doctrinal issues that he has laid out here in this chapter. We must be willing to work for the purpose of unity in our own maturing. And Paul is trying to get us to see the importance of unity because when the church is unified, we believe the same thing and we are each working toward the same goal. Unity is such a blessing that we are privileged to enjoy here at Westside. However, we cannot forget. We cannot forget that Satan would like nothing more than to destroy our unity. Satan would like to plant and sow the seeds of division. Danger lurks, and we must be ready to face it. And there are people within the Lord's church, even, who would be divisive people. Churches will, from time to time, face individuals or even groups of people who will challenge the congregation's unity. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we already read verse 10, where Paul encourages and admonishes the church at Corinth to all agree and speak the same thing and come to the same mind and have the same judgment. And he goes on in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
Where Paul says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What we see is that the church at Corinth was beginning to be fractured. That they were aligning themselves with certain people, with certain apostles or certain teachers. They were dividing the church. In 3 John, the book of 3 John, it's a very short book, but it has a very powerful warning for us. In 3 John and in verse 9, when the apostle John wrote, he says, I wrote something to the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church." Someone like that can be incredibly hard for the Lord's people. Divisive brethren can be a challenge because they may not be overtly teaching something false. They could just have a wrong attitude. Or they say, well, we're going to disregard what we're told and I want to have control. I want to exert my will and my authority and throw my weight around. They may operate behind the scenes causing a distraction in ways beyond just teaching. Factious brothers and sisters can behave in a certain way and they display a certain attitude that can be so destructive and harmful to the unity of the church it can be like a cancer that would eat itself from within. And whenever you might interact with someone like that, it might make you feel like something's not quite right about this, but it's difficult to put your finger on precisely what it is. And so what do we need to watch for? What are some of the attitudes and the behaviors of someone like this? And I think here in 3 John is where we're going to start because we see Diotrephes is someone who is seeking power and dominance and he just wants control, doesn't he? He just wants to be first. He wants the preeminence. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be in control. Someone like Diotrephes, he has this insubmissive attitude where he is not going to pay attention to what is being taught. He is not going to listen to the authority of the apostles. He's not going to listen to the authority of the elders in the church. Because he wants absolute control. He rejects everything else. He wants to control especially the teaching that is taking place in the church. And so he says, you can't listen to that guy or you can't listen to this person. You can only listen to me. Whenever someone has that attitude, watch out. If I ever had that kind of attitude, don't listen to me. You need to oppose me. 
Someone like Diotrephes will always operate in three different ways. That he is going to try to captivate you. He's going to try to pull people off to the side. He's going to try to win them over to their side, to his side. He's going to try to use captivation to impress you. To try to get you to be persuaded in what he is saying. And if that doesn't work, then he's going to use intimidation. He's going to try to bully you. He's going to try to push you around. He's going to gossip or slander and backbite against you. To try to manipulate you into accepting His position of power and authority. And then if that doesn't work, He's going to eliminate you. He's going to turn to elimination. That's what Diotrephes did, isn't it? In verse 10, when, he, when John says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. He wants elimination if you're going to oppose what he says. But then they will also act secretly and deceptively. People who are divisive, Jesus warns us about in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew the 7th chapter and in verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Divisive people are not going to come in here and say, Hey, I'm going to cause a lot of problems. If they did, we'd show them the door, wouldn't we? <laughs> we'd say, we don't want that here. But they want to come in secretly. They want to deceive you. And they want to be devious as they do so. In the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, in the book of Galatians in the second chapter, the Apostle Paul wrote here in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 4, he says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Notice the words that he says there in verse 4. That these false brethren are secretly brought in. They want to sneak in to spy. They want to be under the radar, don't they? Paul goes on in verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. We cannot be naive. We cannot have the ostrich effect where we want to put our head in the sand and ignore certain behaviors. Whenever someone is acting deceptively and deviously, we need to be alarmed. Divisive people will also become emotionally detached. And what I mean by that, I think that is warranting a little bit of an explanation, is that when I mean they are emotionally detached, what I mean by that is they, they don't love you. They don't genuinely love you. They see you as a pawn. They see you as someone that they can try to manipulate. 
They don't genuinely have an affection towards you. Which is antithetical to everything about unity. As we have seen already, that unity is based on love for one another. It is based on having a gentle spirit towards one another. Division and a factious person goes against all of those things that are good and godly. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in verse 2, the Apostle Paul said, For men will be lovers of self. And that really lies where the problem is, isn't it? That they only love themselves. Someone like Diotrephes who wants the preeminence, he only loves himself. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now when I say that they become emotionally detached, they are emotionally detached from you, but they have an ego that is boosted by their own self-love. That Paul says, for men will be lovers of self. Or that they will be having love of pleasure rather than a love for God. They become emotionally detached from God's people and from God Himself. And then divisive people will be opportunistic. As Paul continues to go on here in this same context as he is writing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verses 6 and 7, he says, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You notice who these people who love themselves, who they go after? They go after the weak, don't they? They want to go after those who are easily deceived. And they're going to use every opportunity to pounce when they can. They're going to try to always use other people. That's one reason that false teachers and divisive people want to come in secretly. Because they are waiting for an opportunity of weakness. They want to see a gap in leadership. They want to see a significant event or a change in the congregation that they can use for their own advantage. They look for the right time, the right opportunity because they want to prey on people they think can help them gain their ways. They prey on the unsuspecting. And then the vice of people are very superficial. In verse 5, notice in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, as he's describing these people who would come in and cause disruption, he says that they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. That these 
People, they are superficial. They try to look good on the outside, but inwardly they aren't. They try to hold to this form or this appearance of godliness. Look at how intelligent I am. Look at how much I know. But someone like this is just superficial. Their sense of religious zeal is only outward. They do not truly subject their heart and their life to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They may come to church, they may open their Bible, they may even be able to converse with you about Scripture. But they don't completely submit themselves to the teachings found within it. And what I find is that that can be somewhat of a paradox here. Because here is someone who wants to assert control over and in the church while not genuinely believing what is found within the Word of God. Does that not just seem as odd to you? They can criticize and nitpick everything that is done. Who is teaching? What is being taught? The songs that are sung? The prayers that are offered? And they think they can offer a better solution while they don't have a true understanding or appreciation for the truth at all because they are superficial. And then they can be very flattering through smooth speech. In the book of Romans, in in Romans chapter 16, in Romans chapter 16, notice what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 16 and in verse 17, He says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus, Lord Christ, but of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech, they are deceptive. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Factious people, divisive people, they can be very smooth speakers, flashy with their words. They can be this way in the pulpit. They can be that way in one-on-one situations. They may come to you because they think they can use you and use your influence and use your talents. And so they attempt to use flattery upon you to win you over to their side. A divisive person has great potential to upset the unity in the local church. Because they want to prey upon the unsuspecting. They destroy that unity that we have. They want to disrupt the peace in the church. They cause dissension and create strife. That's why they are so dangerous to our unity. And so how do we deal with that within the body of Christ? If someone takes on these characteristics or has this kind of behavior... What is our response? What should we do? How do we handle someone that is like that? I think the answer is we have to fight. We have to fight for unity. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, notice what the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 18, 
He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul is very clear to Timothy is that you have to fight the good fight. Even whenever people might oppose you, whenever people might turn from the faith and try to disrupt the faith, you have to defend what is right. You have to defend the unity of the church because we're talking about souls in this case of two people versus however many would have been in the congregation at Ephesus where Timothy was preaching at the time. Two souls that could cause everyone to be lost and divided and destroy the church. What we have to realize is that we have to fight to preserve unity for the greatest number of people. And so what, as we've been looking at all these characteristics of divisive people, I want you to also, we're going to come back and revisit all of these same passages, and we're going to see that in every one of them, Paul or the Apostle, John, or whoever it might have been that was writing, they also give the response. What is our response to someone who is like this? Notice, we cannot give in. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 5 as he's talking about these people who have been brought in secretly, that they're sneaking around and spying. Paul says in verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour. We cannot give in. Compromising or trying to find a way to come to some kind of agreement or common ground, it's not going to work. We cannot give in to someone that has this sort of inflated idea of themselves and their ego and what they think is right. We have to fight. We have to continue to refuse to give in. We cannot tolerate their sinful behavior and be and subject other people in the Lord's church to their deviousness and their sinful attitudes. What John says in 3 John in verse 10, he says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does. It does no no one any benefit to ignore the deeds of someone who is divisive. We have to be willing to call a spade a spade. We have to be willing to acknowledge someone who is sinning. And John, as he says... I will call attention to His deeds. I'm going to make it known. And as he closes out that letter in 3 John and in verse 13, as he has just written these things about Diotrephes, in verse 13 he says, I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them 
see you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Does that sound like a face to face meeting that you want? <laughs> to approach the Apostle John, who he says, I'm going to call out your deeds. I'm going to call it out and we're going to talk face to face. If we allow factious and divisive people to operate covertly without shining the light on their actions, then we play right into their hands. We must call out their deeds. And what Paul says to Timothy is very clear, isn't it? Avoid such men as these. It's hard to be any clearer than that. That there is no business that we have to associate with them and to continue in fellowship with them. When they continue to act and misbehave and disrupt the unity that is within the local church, we cannot give in. We cannot play their games. And Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 3. And in verse 10 and 11, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. On the third strike, you're out. The description is sad for this person though, isn't it? They're factious, they're divisive, they're perverted, they're a sinner, they're self-condemned. That's how the Holy Spirit has described someone. And we cannot follow that path. And if this person would not repent after a first and a second warning, Paul is very clear. You reject him. You have nothing to do with that person. Because it is good for us to enjoy the blessing of unity. Unity is a privilege and a blessing that we are able to share. By God's grace and what He has called us to enjoy within the local church. In Psalm 133 and verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Unity is the goal. Unity is the goal, and we want to enjoy unity because a church that is divided is tragic. And it's painful to go through any kind of division or any kind of arguing and strife among God's people. It's some of the most challenging to someone's faith. It's the most discouraging thing that you could probably go through. And unity is what Jesus wants, isn't it? Remember, just before Jesus was to be handed over to Pilate to be crucified, in John chapter 17 and in verse 22, Jesus prayed to His Father in heaven, the glory which You have given Me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When we don't cherish the unity that we have, we don't cherish the words of Jesus in His prayer. Division is against the will of God in the prayer of Jesus Christ. Unity is a blessing. We must always seek for unity. We must always strive to preserve that unity and overcome the spirit of division. I appreciate the good attention that you've had this morning. As we've been able to think about the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. And that unity is something that you can enjoy if you would be willing to become a member of the Lord's church, to be added to the Lord's body that Jesus Christ gave His life for. Dissension and strife are the work of Satan. And if you are in living in sin, if you are still being loyal to the activity and the behaviors of Satan, you need to find the forgiveness that God is willing to grant you. We encourage you to come this morning believing in Jesus Christ, being baptized in water to have your sins washed away. Come to the living water that God grants through Jesus. Maybe it is that you have become a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully for Him. We want to encourage you to come back to the Lord. And we can pray with you and pray for you and help you in any way that we possibly can. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?